thank you very much, all of you, for coming. Uh, my name is John Worrell, and it's a great pleasure for me to be introducing David Wharton. Uh, David was educated first at Oxford and then got his doctorate at Cambridge. He's held a number of uh, university positions and is currently anniversary professor of history at the University of York. He's, of course, published very widely, not only in the history of science, but also on the history of early modern political theory. Uh, within the history of science, or rather, as he argues for a long time, the history of pseudoscience, he published recently a book called Bad Medicine, Doctors Doing Harm Since Hippocrates, which created quite a stir, as you would expect. He's also written a number of studies on the history of early modern unbelief, and you'd be rightly, in my view, provoked by Lucian Favre's claim that there, are no, that there are no atheists, or at least no atheists able to practice as public intellectuals in the 16th century. His earlier book on Paolo Sarpi was a direct refutation of Faber's claims, so it would have uh, meant that Popper felt, felt very highly of uh, David Wharton, nice direct refutations. Uh, and pre-enlightenment atheist public intellectuals is the subject to which he turns tonight, perhaps surprisingly for many of us, since the public intellectual concerned is Galileo, generally regarded to, be, to have been a good Catholic. The title of his recent book, on which the lecture is based, is Galileo, Watcher of the Skies, and you'll have a chance to buy that book if you feel like it afterwards, signed by David. Uh, and the title of his lecture is Galileo and the Infinite Universe, Science, Heresy, and the Inquisition. So, David, please. I've just been reminded of something there. Um, do we have the sound? Stop playing. Right, it reached the end. Those of you who were in this room earlier when the sound was playing, uh, the music you were hearing was by Galileo's father and is therefore part of the soundtrack of his childhood. And when we get to the very end, we'll hear some music by Galileo's brother. If you have a good memory for music, you may be able to carry the, his father's music through to the end, and you should, I hope, hear a significant difference between them. I'd like to, th to thank John for that introduction. Um, and uh, and to, the to the reference to the Popperian idea of refutation, because I've always understood the enterprise of the historian as being an intellectual enterprise which depends upon presenting arguments and trying to refute arguments. I don't see history as being primarily about the accumulation of information. I see it as about the testing of arguments. And what I'm going to try and do today is test very well-established argument an argument that hasn't been contested seriously in the last hundred years, uh, and arguably not for longer than that, the claim that Galileo was a good Catholic. My belief is that Galileo was no Catholic at all, that he was no Christian at all, and I'm going to try and persuade you that the evidence such as we have must lead one to that conclusion. Uh, at the end of the talk, you may disagree with me, you may agree with me, but I hope you will at least think that this is a question that needs to be reconsidered and rethought. So we're talking about Galileo, and I'm putting here what is, I think, much the best portrait of Galileo. It's a rather sad thing to look at, because you can see it's in terrible condition. It's got a great hole in it, or it had. It hasn't been seen for 50 years. We don't know where it is. All that survives is this slide of it. Uh, but I think it's the picture which catches best the character of the man. That's to say it catches a certain anxiety that he seems to have carried with him throughout his life. 
And one of the things I do in my book is try and explore the nature of that anxiety. I should say about my book that the book is, as it were, a stool with three legs to it. There's an argument about Galileo's science and his Copernicanism and when he became a Copernican. There's an argument about Galileo's trial and what was really going on at the trial. And there's an argument about Galileo's religion. What I'm going to present to you today is a summary of the argument about Galileo's religion. I'm happy to confess that this is the most rickety leg of the stool, as it were. Uh, and if you want to say, well, that's a problem, I'm happy to accept that. And I want to start, and this is why I suddenly leapt up. I don't know if we can, oh, we can read this on the screen, so I can read it straight from the screen. I was anxious I wouldn't be able to. I want to start with an anecdote. Those of you of a theoretical persuasion will, will know that anecdote is more or less a term of art in literary criticism. It's a, a way of paying homage to Stephen Greenblatt and to, Lucien, and to uh, Michel Foucault, uh, and that's intentional. On the 3rd of June, 1628, a few months after Michelangelo had returned to Munich, Michelangelo being Galileo's brother, Benedetto Castelli wrote from Rome to Galileo in Florence. Castelli is Galileo's closest collaborator, and he's a monk, and he teaches in the Papal University. Castelli had been looking after Galileo's young nephew, Vincenzo, Michelangelo's son, who had been sent to Rome to study music. Vincenzo, unfortunately, had been nothing but trouble. He had complained of having to sit through endless sermons during Lent. The words he, sent, he said went in one ear and out the other. He refused to perform his devotions, even putting off Easter confession to the very last moment. He stayed out overnight. He consorted with foreigners. He was extravagant. He had tried to buy a diamond ring. On being told off, he had shouted at Castelli, I'm only here because my father and uncle want to get rid of me. Castelli regarded this remark, which was all too close to the truth, for there was a suggestion that Vincenzo had struck his mother, as too shocking for a rational response. Castelli told Vincenzo that he was at the point of having to beat him with his own hands, as one would a madman. All that was bad enough. But Vincenzo had now gone further in an argument with his landlord. I'm not an idiot like you lot who worship a bit of plastered wall, a bit of painted wall, he had said. Prudently, Castelli now reported to Galileo, his landlord had replied that he trusted he did not mean what he said, for if he really meant it, then he was obliged to denounce him to the Holy Office, that's to say the Inquisition, and he would be burnt alive in the Campo dei Fiori. Castelli's advice was that Galileo must get Vincenzo back to Florence without telling him what was in store for him, and there Galileo must himself report Vincenzo to the Inquisition, for otherwise Galileo was in danger of falling under suspicion of being the accomplice of a heretic. Vincenzo was indeed removed from Rome as fast as possible, but Galileo did not denounce him, nor have him imprisoned for insubordination, as later recommended by Castelli, who seems to have had no doubt that at a word from Galileo, space would be found in the prisons of Florence for a disobedient young man. Instead, he was shipped off to Poland, where his father had connections and where he was safely out of reach of the Inquisition. What became of him, we do not know. Even his family soon lost track of him. Castelli writes that when he was told that Vincenzo had said he felt as if, when he was told what Vincenzo had said, he felt as if his arms had been broken. 
He may have been imagining the standard torture used during interrogation by Italian authorities, the strappado. The words Vincenzo had spoken immediately invoked the image and the smell of a burning heretic. And to be in the presence of such a person was to be at oneself at risk of torture or worse. Galileo was all too familiar with that feeling. And he understood that Castelli was alarmed, and rightly alarmed, on both his own and his friend's behalf. By 1628, Galileo had been denounced to the Inquisition five times, first in Florence, then in Padua, then again both in Florence and in Rome, and most recently in Rome. There were people who said that the only reason he had never been tried for heresy was that he had powerful protectors. But just as Galileo could not have protected Vincenzo if, if Castelli had denounced the young man to the Inquisition, so there was a point beyond which even those who protected Galileo would find themselves powerless. Above all, everyone chose carefully the words they entrusted to paper. In advising Galileo to denounce his nephew to the Inquisition, and in carefully describing Vincenzo as mad, Castelli was constructing a defense for himself, as well as giving his friend good advice. Thereafter, he tried to spend as little time with Vincenzo as possible, fearing that he would say something in the presence of witnesses that would leave him no choice but to call in the authorities. Vincenzo had been born and raised in Germany. His father had gone to practice music in Munich, where there was no inquisition and where Protestants and Catholics often mixed freely. It would have been better, said Castelli, if he had been born and raised in Geneva. Uh, you need at this point to be, have a sense of the shock of having a counter-reformation monk say it would have been better if someone had been born and raised in Geneva. Then his beliefs might have been as, as diabolical, but at least he would have known that there were lines one must never cross. In studying Galileo, we too find ourselves in a foreign country, as Vincenzo did. We do not understand the rules that Galileo, together with his relatives and his friends, his patrons and his enemies, took entirely for granted. It takes the arrival of an outsider or a madman someone who cannot or will not play by the rules to bring into the open what would otherwise have remained unspoken and unwritten. In order to understand Galileo, we need to understand the lessons that Vincenzo stubbornly refused to learn. Galileo understood those rules and he respected them. Because he was tried by the Inquisition, threatened with torture, condemned to house arrest, it is easy to think of him as a rebel. But rebels, and those who misunderstood the rules come to very different ends from, those, from that of Galileo. Galileo's friend, the Dominican monk Tommaso Campanella, was horribly tortured, spent 27 years in prison, and died in exile in France. Galileo's critic, Francesco Sizzi, went to France, where he published a pamphlet taking sides in a French political dispute. He was condemned to be broken upon the wheel, that, he was that is, he was tied to a wheel, and the executioner clubbed his body, breaking his bones one by one until he was dead. Galileo was far more cautious than his nephew, his friend, and his critic. He not only died in bed, he died at home. Did Vincenzo's close shave alarm Galileo? I doubt it. It would never have occurred to him to make the sort of rash statement that Vincenzo had made, not at any rate to someone like Vincenzo's landlord, someone who could not be trusted. Won't, I promise you not to, not to do any more reading. I'm just going to talk from here on. Let's just recap quickly Galileo's career. He's born in 1564, 
the age of 25, he starts teaching mathematics as a junior professor. And from 1589 to 1610, he's essentially, in publishing terms, an unsuccessful professor. He's getting better connected. He's getting a better salary. But he publishes no nothing of significance. In 1610, he publishes the Sidereus Nuncius, the Starry Messenger. And overnight, he becomes world famous, or European famous, shall we say. And from 1610 to 1616, he's committed to the struggle of advancing the Copernican cause, of persuading people that Copernicanism is the correct description of the universe. And he makes astonishing discoveries that support that argument, the discovery, for example, of the phases of Venus. In 1616, Copernicanism is officially condemned by the Catholic Church. Galileo can no longer publish in its support. And he's effectively prevented from engaging in the intellectual work he wants to engage in. And the situation only changes in 1624 when Cardinal Barberini is elected Pope Urban VIII. He's an old friend of Galileo's. Galileo goes to Rome, and he's given permission to reopen the question of Copernicanism, providing he respects certain limits. He must not say that Copernicanism is true. He may only say that it's an interesting hypothesis. He must not say that it can be proved to be true. He must only say there are arguments for and against that deserve consideration. From 1624 to 1632, he's working on his great book, The Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, which comes out in 1632. And when copies arrive in Rome, the Pope is immediately furious because he claims that Galileo has broken the conditions that had been imposed upon him. He's presented deliberately a proof of the truth of Copernicanism. He's not suggested there are arguments for and against. He's suggested that the case is straightforward, Copernicanism is right, and the alternative hypotheses are entirely wrong. Galileo is put on trial by the Inquisition. He is condemned for giving grounds for suspicion of being a Copernican. This is an interesting condemnation because until the moment Galileo is condemned, Copernicanism has never been officially a heresy. Copernicanism becomes a heresy by virtue of the condemnation of Galileo. So Galileo, we may say, may have been a little bit surprised to discover the seriousness of the situation he was in. And from 1633 until 1642, he's a prisoner under house arrest, uh, eventually back in Florence, uh, and continuing to write and continuing to correspond secretly with his allies and supporters. When Galileo dies, in 1642, his papers are taken over by his disciple Vincenzo Viviani. And those papers are the papers that we have inherited when we study Galileo. And Viviani believed that it would be possible to rehabilitate Galileo's reputation. It took a very long time. It took uh, 80 years to get him a tomb. But in 2000, uh, the papacy issued what it's described in English as an apology. Uh, there's a discussion about this on the web, if you like. The word apology doesn't really exist in Italian, so in Italian it certainly wasn't an apology. In papal Latin, I'm not sure what it was. Uh, an apology for the condemnation of Galileo. Viviani owned almost every crucial document that now survives. They all passed through his hands. 
Many of them disappeared while in his possession. We know what he had and that no longer survives. In many cases, what he kept is summaries of letters between Galileo and his Protestant supporters. And in one particular case, we can see that he radically revised his summary in order to significantly alter the meaning of the text and in order to make the text innocent where it seems originally, but we don't have the original, it must not have been innocent. We also have the evidence that Viviani heard that there was being published in, in Holland letters of Galileo to his friend Paolo Sarpi, and Sarpi was condemned as a heretic and had never been rehabilitated by the Catholic Church. Viviani knew you couldn't mention Sarpi's name in print in the context of, Vivi of Galileo. Edition of Galileo's works that had appeared in Bologna in 1655, all references to Sarpi had been removed by the censor. Viviani set out to acquire these texts that he believed in, were in Amsterdam and to ensure that they never saw the light of day. Now, you may put your own interpretation on what ensuring something never sees the light of day amounts to, but I think a perfectly straightforward interpretation is that Viviani wanted to make sure that those texts were destroyed. The evidence is that Viviani probably filleted, censored, the surviving documents. They also, we lost randomly documents out of that collection because his heirs started selling them off as waste paper uh, where they went to, to wrap bits of meat. And only by accident was it discovered that uh, Galileo's paper, papers by somebody bought some Bologna sausage that was wrapped in a letter from Galileo went off and purchased on a very good price the complete archive and eventually supplied it to the Florentine government. So we know that there's a random process of attrition in those documents, but I think there's also a deliberate process of attrition that Viviani went through them. The archive is, in my view, tainted. But in any case, it's absolutely essential to understand that Galileo, throughout his life, lived in a world in which the Inquisition was active. And living with the Inquisition, as we've seen in the case of his nephew, required certain straightforward precautions if your beliefs were not orthodox. Palasapi said that wherever I go I wear a mask, I do not think there is anyone in Italy who can be without one. Essential that you, in appropriate contexts, present yourself as an orthodox Catholic. Sapi was a very complicated figure because he also was capable of presenting himself to Protestants and as a Protestant and so on but it was essential that you wore the mask required of you. Just as in a communist state before the fall of communism, it was essential that you presented yourself as a communist and a Marxist. It was essential that you took fundamental precautions if you were engaged in correspondence or communication that the inquisitors would not approve of. We know exactly the precautions Galileo took because he writes, writes to people laying out how they must communicate with him. They must write, they must put the letter to him into an envelope addressed to someone else. If possible, they must send it by the diplomatic pouch. If possible, they should arrange for it always to be transmitted by hand. His Protestant correspondence never put his name in the letter to him for fear that the evidence that they're writing to him will be there on the page. So we have a detailed picture of the precautions after 1633, but even before that 
uh, where he's very concerned that his letters will be intercepted. So, of course, we are in a world in which if you speak freely, it's only to trusted people and it's only in circumstances where you know who you're talking to. We have letters to Galileo from disciples in Rome saying, one of your friends has come to Rome and he won't talk to me. Tell him he can trust me. Tell him he can talk to me. We know that there is, as it were, a list of people that you carry around in your mind of who you can trust and who you can't trust, and this chap wants to be added to the list. And so if we wanted to ask what Galileo really believed, we would have, access, we would have, had, have to have access to these lost conversations, conversations with trustworthy friends, uh, like his Protestant friend Diodati, who spends two weeks in his company in Florence talking about how they can publicize his work. We don't know what they say. The conversation is entirely lost. What we do know is for the rest of his life, Diodati tries to publish and succeeds in publishing Galileo's key works, including the Latin translation of the dialogue. Galileo spends the years between 1592 and 1610 in Venice, and Venice is something of an exception in that the Venetian Inquisition is kept on a tight leash by the Venetian government, and employees of the Venetian authorities, which includes professors at the University of Padua like Galileo, are systematically protected from the Inquisition. There is what is called Paduan liberty. You can speak out in Padua in a way you can nowhere else in Italy because you know that the Inquisition will have great difficulty in getting to you. That doesn't mean they won't open a file on you. It doesn't mean they won't try and prosecute you. Uh, they do this, but consistently they won't get their hands on you. And Galileo's most interesting choice in his life is the choice to leave Venice for Florence in 1610 and therefore move away from Padua and Liberty into the world where the Inquisition has genuine authority. Uh, and it's a choice which has the terrible consequences of the trial and the condemnation. When I started working in this field back in the uh, mid-1970s, the orthodox view, as John has just said, was Lucien Febvre's view from his great book of 1942 that there were no atheists in the 16th century. And consequently, the enterprise of looking for early modern unbelief was regarded as a fundamentally ahistorical enterprise. I don't think anyone quite thinks that anymore. I think we really have changed the terms of this discussion. I started out simply working with Paolo Sarpi's notebooks and showing that in his private notebooks, Sarpi had constructed a systematic critique of religion uh, and that there was no way of reading those notebooks as anything other than a declaration of his own private unbelief. And in saying that, actually, I wasn't the first. Lord Acton had uh, been there before me, but uh, his views had been forgotten about in the meantime. So we have plenty of people whose unbelief is not only recognized by us, but more interestingly is recognized by their contemporaries. The two leading professors of philosophy at Pisa when Galileo was a student and then a junior professor there, Girolamo Borro and Francesco Buonamici, are both regarded as, by, as unbelievers by their colleagues and by the Inquisition and are repeatedly uh, have inquiries opened against them. In Padua, Paolo Sarpi I've already mentioned, 
Uh, Cesare Cremolini is the leading Aristotelian philosopher at the University of Padua, Galileo's close friend. They spend a lot of time together. They have complicated financial transactions with each other. Uh, Cremolini is now famous for having refused to look through the telescope because he didn't want to see what he might see there. He was quite happy to look through, the, through Galileo's early microscope because he wasn't, he, there was nothing he would see with a microscope, which was contrary to the teaching of Aristotle, so he was quite happy about that. Cremonini is described uh, by the man in charge of the University of Padua at the time as having educated a generation of atheists and having made unbelief fashionable among the young intelligentsia of Venice. And the best book on this is a recent book by Ed Muir, uh, which came out from Harvard University Press in, I think, 2006, The Culture Wars of the Late Renaissance, which looks at Venetian and Paduan unbelief in the early 17th century. There's a very strange portrait of Cesare Cremonini, which I find implausible in a basic way, because Cremonini, we know, spent money like water, and he had a carriage with six horses. I can't believe a man with a carriage like six horses wasn't also extremely elegantly dressed. Uh, but there we go. And this is a rather poor reproduction of an 18th century uh, frontispiece of Paolo Sarpi. I don't, it doesn't show up very well. Let's turn to Galileo and, and the Inquisition. And the important thing here, I think, is to grasp, and I've already said this in the passage I read to you from my book, that there's a tendency to think that Galileo only gets in trouble with the Inquisition in 1632, and that the, the trial of 1633 is Galileo's encounter with the Inquisition. And what's absolutely essential is to realize that Galileo is in trouble with the Inquisition throughout his life. At an unknown date, but apparently when he's an adolescent, he is denounced to the Florentine Inquisition. The text we have is ambiguous, but probably by his mother. She, we know about this because she reports it to someone who writes it down in a later document for the Inquisition. She complains that he called her a whore and an ugly old cow in response to her uh, denouncing him to the Inquisition. Quite what she expected her son to call her when she denounced him to the Inquisition, I'm not, I'm not sure, but certainly apparently not that. A source about that early denunciation comes from Silvestro Pagnoni, who is employed by Galileo to copy texts for him. He denounces Galileo to the Inquisition in 1604 uh, in uh, Padua for practicing astrology, which Galileo certainly is doing, and for selling his astrology on the basis that his prognostications are infallible, which is taken to be a denial of providence. And Pagnoni says that Galileo never goes to church, that he spends all his time in the company of Cesare Cremonini, uh, but that he doesn't say irreligious things. That accusation lies on the file because the Venetian government refuses to let the Inquisitor pursue it. In 1615 and 1616, when Galileo is in Florence, he is denounced first by a Dominican called Lorini and then by a Dominican called Caccini, first in Florence, and the Florentine Inquisitor, who tends to respect the wishes of the Grand Duke of Florence, does nothing. And then they go to Rome and denounce him again in Rome. And they're denouncing Galileo's Copernicanism, and this leads to the condemnation of Copernicanism in 1616. But they also produce a series of reported 
conversations that Galileo's students are supposed to have had, which imply that their master, their teacher, is a deep heretic. For example, that there are no miracles. For example, uh, that the uh, prayers to the saints are pointless and so forth. These reports lead to the students and people who've talked to them being called in by the Florentine Inquisitor and being interrogated politely. And the outcome of these interrogations is that their careful accounts are given of how these were part of intellectual discussions uh, about the proper way of understanding St. Thomas Aquinas, for example. Uh, and the Inquisitor is forced to accept that he's never going to get convincing evidence. We have all sorts of ways, I think, of seeing that these reports of the conversations of Galileo's students match up with what we know Galileo thought, and I could, if I had time, go into that in detail. Uh, but let's not pursue it here. Let's leave it where the Inquisitor leaves it as a problem that's difficult to solve. In 1624, Galileo is denounced to the Inquisition by an anonymous person on the basis of his published text, the Assea, Il Sagittore, which contains straightforward atomist arguments. And the denunciation is that if you are an atomist, you cannot believe in transubstantiation. Transubstantiation requires you to believe that there is a substance which in the bread and wine is turned into the body and blood of Christ, even though the accidents of the bread and wine remain the same, and the challenge to an atomist would be, given a counter transubstantiation in the language of atomism, and the claim is, this is impossible, therefore all atomists are deniers of transubstantiation, and as the only people who standardly deny transubstantiation are Protestants, the fundamental charge is that Galileo is, by implication, a Protestant. That charge doesn't go anywhere. The decision seems to be taken that you perhaps can be an atomist. Later on, Descartes is condemned by the Inquisition in his absence and without any public statement uh, on precisely this charge. So the, standard, the view becomes that atomism and Catholic orthodoxy are, are completely un uh, irreconcilable. And then in 1632, the dialogue is put before a committee of theologians who pass it on to the Inquisition, and Galileo is convicted. Recent research has discovered a further denunciation of Galileo, which survives in the documents of the Congregation of the Index, the congregation that dealt with censorship, and is written by Melchior Inkoffer, who was one of the leading theologians charged with deciding if Galileo was a heretic or not. And this is essentially a repeat of the denunciation of 1624. It argues that Galileo has denied transubstantiation. And the peculiar thing about this, it comes from a person of recognized authority, someone who is an official consultant to the Inquisition. The peculiar thing about this denunciation is that it's left lying on the file. And the only explanation for this, I think, is that it's part of a plea bargain that Galileo makes as the trial takes place. They drop this charge in return for Galileo's cooperation with the other charge that he's facing. In 1633, Galileo is under house arrest at the house of the Archbishop of Siena, and the Archbishop of Siena is reported to be going around saying that Galileo is the greatest man there has ever been, that the church was wrong to condemn him, that of course his science is correct. And by implication, 
that this is the character of his conversations with Galileo. So this isn't a direct accusation of Galileo, but it falls very close to Galileo. And in 1641, a group of Pierist fathers who had been officially uh, permitted to live with Galileo and to, uh, had been sent to Florence by the founder of their order to learn maths and then set up schools teaching the new science to young men, are denounced to the Inquisition by a member of the order for insisting that the world was never created, insisting that atomism is correct, insisting that uh, Galileo is right, and so on. It's a very detailed denunciation from pe of people who are acknowledged by Galileo as his disciples and friends. And it's a denunciation which makes clear that they have stepped as a group well outside the realm of orthodoxy. Uh, to some degree, they're protected by the Grand Duke. Um, and uh, one of them, for example, is sent off uh, to Sicily as a punishment. So there's a series of accusations. Against this, we have what is the basic uh, foundation of the modern scholarship on Galileo, uh, ever since his death and ever since Viviani set about to rehabilitate his reputation, and that is a number of texts in, which, texts in which Galileo declares that he is a good Catholic, that he is, in his own words, a saint, and that he would rather tear his eyes out than do anything that would cause him to enter into conflict with the church. The key text in this sense is um, uh, the letter to uh, Christina, uh, of probably of 1615, in which he presents a detailed account of how his science is compatible with Christianity and with Catholicism. And the claim that Galileo is a good Catholic essentially depends on that text and Galileo's recantation and Galileo's statement at his recantation that he is a Catholic. But there is astonishing what I'm going to call negative evidence Galileo only says that he's a good Catholic at times when he is being directly investigated for heresy. I don't go around telling you people that I pay my taxes, but you can be sure that if the Indian Revenue started investigating me, the one thing I would immediately say is, I pay my taxes. Galileo's statements of Catholic faith are all entirely convenient. And in the 20 volumes of Galileo material that survives, in the Great Favara edition of 1910, in those 20 volumes, it is a most astonishing fact that Galileo never once mentions Jesus Christ. He never once mentions salvation. He never once mentions any central doctrine of the Christian faith. For a 17th century intellectual, this is simply astonishing, this extraordinary silence. We've already heard Pagnoni reporting that he never goes to church. We can hardly ever find him in a church. We have one example of him arranging to meet someone at a church. There's another example of him saying, I was listening to a sermon when I began to think about some problems in math. 
We never get a letter from him saying, I've heard a good sermon on such and such. There's no example of him engaging with religion, except for one I'll come to, perhaps. We know exactly the books that Galileo owns. The letter to, Queen, to the Grand Duchess Christina has led people to think that Galileo read Augustine carefully. We know he did not own a copy of Augustine. We know that his quotations from Augustine are supplied to him so that he can make use of them. He has in his library essentially no religious books at all. The complete list is, uh, consists of three or four things. There's a volume of sermons of a very uh, uninteresting sort. There's no theology. There's no standard works of piety. We can get Galileo giving away. There's an example where he gives someone a crucifix, and they say, which he's been given in Rome by a cardinal, and they say, don't you want to keep it for yourself? And he says, clearly, no, I'd rather you had it. When he goes to Rome, his daughter says, bring back religious paintings for me, paintings of the Virgin and of Christ. Uh, there is no example of Galileo acquiring crucifix, a religious painting, a rosary, any of the standard apparatus of part. And we have the list of his possessions when he dies, and there's nothing like that there. In addition, we have positive evidence. We know that Galileo wrote a treatise on miracles that disappeared. He was told that it was not an appropriate thing to be passing around. We know that it provided natural explanations for supposed miracles. The miracle of the fiery furnace, for example. Uh, and that's all we know about it but it was clearly regarded as an attempt, as it were, to give a scientific reinterpretation of, it's become a long tradition, of reports of miracles. We know that Galileo is a faithful reader of Lucretius. He owns two copies of Lucretius, although it's a banned book. His atomism clearly comes from Lucretius, and he presents Lucretian atomist doctrine and gets into trouble for it. Galileo has full access to the Lucretian intellectual tradition. And we find him in the safest of places, the margins of his books, occasionally making comments that are interesting, shall we say. One of his critics says that we can tell that God is a God of providence because he made dry land so that animals wouldn't drown. Galileo says in the margin, but if there was no dry land, there'd be no animals. So we wouldn't know. Uh, that sort of comment, I think, is hard to read without thinking that he is setting out to provide a criticism of standard providentialist accounts. And we have a very strange letter. It's unique in his surviving texts. You need to remember that we don't know how many texts were destroyed by Viviani. Which he writes in 1615 during the crisis over Copernicanism when he's trying to persuade uh, the Catholic Church in Rome to uh, tolerate Copernicanism in which he attaches himself clearly to a Platonist doctrine of the soul of the world, the anima mundi, and essentially to the theology, if we can call it that, the cosmogony of the Timaeus. Uh, and that's a cosmogony that has often been given a semi-Christian interpretation, but certainly isn't 
uh, a Christian text. We also have a very interesting piece of, I've called this positive evidence, we're now moving to indirect evidence. A man called de Monsonis, who's a French intellectual, goes to Florence after Galileo's death and meets up with all of Galileo's disciples. And it's a sort of joining of the club that's taking place. They give him copies of all of Galileo's works. And he doesn't pay for them. It's quite clear that this is, as it were, he's being handed the treasures that disciples of Galileo own. He's becoming a fellow disciple. And one evening he goes for a walk with Viviani, Galileo's last disciple and closest disciple. And Viviani tells him that the sun is only a star, that there are other inhabited worlds, uh, that life comes from the anima mundi, and so on. It's very striking that the very person who spends his whole career trying to prove that Galileo is a good Catholic in this one private conversation we have a record of shows himself not to be at all a conventional or indeed any sort of Catholic. We know about this because de Monsignis dies and his son then publishes his private diary. It wasn't written for publication. It's a perfectly reliable record in the sense that it's an entirely private record that happens to survive. And Viviani himself writes two works, one in Italian and the other in Latin, in which he claims to prove the truths of Christianity by geometry. He announces this to a very pious friend of his, who says, Viviani, are you sure you're proving all the truths of Christianity by geometry, or are you just proving some of the truths? And are you implying that Christianity needs geometry because that would not be an acceptable implication. After this correspondence, these works disappear. We don't, they don't survive. We don't know exactly how they work. But I think we can safely say that a geometrical demonstration of the truths of religion you might ask yourself, what could you hope to prove? Well, you might prove that God exists. You might prove uh, that God is infinite and various other things. I think you certainly won't be proving uh, anything about the resurrection, for example. I doubt that that's going to prove to be a geometrical proof of the resurrection. I think at this point, we are at the point where we would be forced to accept that there is no good evidence that Galileo is a good Catholic. No good evidence that he is really a Christian. All there is is evidence that he conformed outwardly to the required beliefs of his time, to a significant degree, but not completely, which is why I kept getting into trouble with the Inquisition. But that the more private the evidence gets, the more you're looking at his marginalia, the more you're looking at the books he has in his library, the more you're looking at his personal possessions, the less evidence of religion you find. And I think we could at this point say that it's doubtful that Galileo is any sort of Christian at all. I think we could do that. But we have better evidence, I think. And this evidence has been overlooked. And it's been overlooked because we were intended to overlook it, I suppose we might say, I think. That's to say, I think it's evidence that Viviani overlooked because he thought that it spoke in favor of Galileo because he didn't read it right. And so now I'm going to have to ask you to share a way of reading these texts with me well, I'm going to acknowledge that Viviani would have expected you to read them differently. 
And the first is a correspondence, and I don't discuss this in the book, because I didn't quite grasp this, I think, when I wrote the book. It's difficult to change how you read things. It's a correspondence between Castelli and the papal nephew, Barberini. Castelli is asking for permission to go and visit Galileo in Florence, where Galileo is under house arrest. The year is 1638. Galileo is very old. He's blind. It's expected that he will die soon. And Castelli tells the papal nephew that the duke is very concerned that Galileo should make a good Christian death. And that he therefore wants permission to visit Galileo to try and bring this about. Now, ask yourself what's going on here. You don't need to arrange for someone to make a good Christian death if they're a good Christian. Uh, you don't. You, and Galileo has. He's got uh, members of the Pierist order sleeping with him. He's got day and night access to the sacraments. He does not need a visitor from Rome to provide anything like that. Castelli is given permission to visit Galileo on an interesting condition, the condition that he cannot mention Copernicanism, that if he does mention Copernicanism, he will automatically be excommunicated, and only the Pope himself will be able to lift this excommunication. Now, this tells us something very striking, which is that the fear is not that Galileo is going to hell because he's a Copernican. The fear is not that Galileo is not a Christian because he's a Copernican, because that's the one thing that Castelli is not permitted to talk about, and Castelli thinks that's all right. So Castelli visits Galileo to persuade him to die a Christian. I think this is in... You just have to see what's on the other side of this coin. What's on the other side of this coin is that Galileo is not a Christian in December of 1638, to the best of Castelli's understanding, which is why he must visit him. Castelli is a profoundly pious man. Why he must visit him and arrange his reconciliation with religion. And, of course, for the Grand Duke, this is important in a rather different way. I doubt that the Grand Duke is a Christian. He's very happy when people write to him, write letters to him saying, I hate the Inquisition. We have such a letter. He doesn't have any problem with this. Uh, but it's politically important for the Grand Duke that Galileo should die a Christian. The official religion of Florence is at stake, you might say. We don't know what Castelli and Galileo talk about when they do meet, as they do. But we have a letter from Castelli dated the 7th of June, 1639, which I believe is open to one and only one interpretation. The text, I don't know if you can read this, but I have gone to the trouble of taking the text out of the Favaro edition and it's all there. We can get it, read it out to ourselves at the end if we want to ask questions about it. Castelli says, I've been out of Rome. I've come back to Rome. I've received a letter from your, your uh, brother-in-law which has moved me to tears. I cannot tell you how thrilled and delighted I am. Just as the laborer who was the last to be hired, received the wage. So you too, Galileo, can receive salvation. The laborer who's the last, you remember the parable in the New Testament, 
farmer goes out and hires laborers, some in the morning and some later in the day. At the end, instead of paying them by the number of hours they've worked, they all receive the same wage. The wage is salvation. Galileo here is the laborer who's the last to be hired. He's approaching his death. He is now accepting his wage as a Christian. Castelli, I think, is absolutely clear that Galileo has now at last converted to Christianity. And that this means key passages um, around the top of the page. Um, there, about five lines down, um, our blessed Savior, our, our Savior Jesus Christ, who calls people at different times of the day and through his infinite, infinite mercy gives the same wage of the day's work to all, even if um, our work has been undertaken at the last hour. Above all, it, take, it pleases me that, you're, uh, that you have taken the good example. Uh, and then he goes on to discuss uh, a uh, pious example that Galileo should follow. This example is not a rather complicated story of uh, a proto-saint who has brought about the death of one of Galileo's enemies. Castelli, writing this letter, is convinced that Galileo has taken the wage of Christ at the last hour and that that has brought him within the Christian church and that this is a cause for such delight that one should be moved to tears. That letter, I think, seemed to Viviani entirely an innocent letter. That's to say it was a letter about how Galileo was a Christian. What Viviani, I think, didn't grasp was that it was a profoundly incriminating letter, if you accept uh, a papal view of this or an inquisition view of this in that it implies absolutely clearly that Galileo had not been a Christian before. I want to, I'm running out of time but I'll move quickly now. Standard astron astronomy prior to Galileo had had a wonderful congruence with Christianity because it had placed the earth at the center of the universe, the heavens above the earth, hell at the center of the earth, and so on. Great book by Alexander Quare, From the Closed World to the Infinite Universe, presents as the greatest intellectual breakthrough in many ways of the new astronomy, the recognition of the possibility of an infinite universe. And the first text in which we see this is a text by an Englishman, Thomas Diggs, published in 1576, a text that Galileo presumably never saw, uh, although he had English students who were Copernicans, so he may have, in which you see this illustration of the universe with the sun at the center, the planets going around it, and the stars scattered out into space until they run off the edge of the page so that the universe is without end. The most important figure here is Giordano Bruno, who had published on the infinite universe and worlds in 1584, and who had been burnt in 1600 after prolonged torture in Rome. Galileo never mentions Giordano Bruno, but he certainly knew his work. We can see echoes of his work in the dialogue, for example, and other people constantly compare Galileo's arguments with those of Bruno and are met only with Galileo's silence. And we know that Galileo works in a library where there are copies of Bruno's works, so we can work out when he read Bruno. This is the Campo dei Fiori where Bruno was burnt and where 
Galileo's nephew was told that he would be burnt if he didn't learn to hold his tongue. It's an 18th century illustration. In a text that was never published in Galileo's lifetime, and indeed not, I think, till the 20th century, uh, the letter to Ingeli. Ingeli was the theologian. Galileo writes him this letter. He passes it around amongst his friends, saying, I'm going to show this to Ingeli. Ingeli writes to one of them, saying, I hear there's a letter to me. Could I see it, please? Uh, it's decided Ingeli shouldn't see the letter. Uh, the letter is taken out of circulation. Uh, it contains an extended discussion of the issue of the infinity of the universe, in which Galileo says, we can't prove that the universe is infinite, but if you ask me to choose, then I think it's more likely to be infinite than not. And in the dialogue, a text that had been heavily studied by the censors, Galileo raises the question of the possibility of life on other worlds, a question he'd also discussed in 1616. I'm certain that a person born and raised in a huge forest among wild beasts and animals and knowing nothing of the watery element, would never be able to frame in his imagination another world existing in nature differing from his, filled with animals which could travel without legs or fast-beating wings, and not upon its surface alone like beasts upon the earth, but everywhere within its depths, and not only moving, but stopping motionless wherever they pleased, a thing which birds in the air cannot do, and that men lived there too, and built palaces and cities, and travelled with such ease, that without tiring themselves at all they could proceed to far countries, with their families and households and whole cities. Now, as I say, I'm sure that such a man could not, even with the liveliest imagination, ever picture to himself fishes, the ocean, ships, fleets, and armadas. The claim here is simple. We cannot tell if there is life on other worlds because we cannot imagine the condition and character of that life. We are incapable of making a judgment on this. But what we do know is that there are more types of life than we would imagine if we didn't have the evidence of the oceans, for example, to look at. And he says this quite astonishing thing. I've put earthlings on here. Earthling is my translation. The text below comes from Drake's translation. It is a great folly for us earthlings to want to be arbiters of the sizes of the stars and regulators of their dispositions, we being quite ignorant of all their affairs and interests. Now, if we're earthlings, the implication is very clear that there are potentially inhabitants of other worlds, which was the, arguably the heresy for which Bruno had been burnt. We don't know why Bruno was burnt, because the trial text doesn't survive and no decree was published. Even Galileo didn't know what Bruno was burnt for. So Galileo and we have to make exactly the same guess that Bruno had been burnt for the heresy of believing in an infinite universe and infinite inhabited worlds. And these last two texts, and I've been going on too long, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read them out to you, but I can leave them up there, are the discussion between Adam and Raphael in Milton's Paradise Lost. Milton has a problem in Paradise Lost. He's met Galileo. He's met him in Florence. He's probably convinced of the truth of Copernicanism, but he certainly doesn't want to write a Copernican epic poem because Copernicanism might turn out to be wrong and in any case most of his readers aren't going to be Copernican. So Adam tells, or Raphael tells Adam a Ptolemaic story about the universe and Adam then says well 
But is that necessarily right? And Raphael then says, well, there's an alternative hypothesis here that might also be worth thinking about. You never get to know quite which is true. Let's jump through to this. Raphael to Adam. If Earth, industrious of herself, industrious of herself, fetch day, travelling east and with her part of us, from the sun's beam meet night her other part, still luminous by his ray. What if that light, sent from her through the wide transpicuous air to the terrestrial moon, be as a star enlightening her by day as she be night? This is the theory that the moon is illuminated by Earthshine, which Galileo had laid out in 1610. It's a direct reference to Galileo. Uh, enlightening her by day as she by night to this earth, reciprocal. If land be there, fields and inhabitants, her spots thou seest as clouds, and clouds may rain, and rain produce fruits in her softened soil for some to eat, allotted there. And other suns, perhaps, with their attendant moons, thou wilt describe, communicating male and female light, which two great sexes animate the world, stored in each orb, perhaps, with some that live, for such vast room in nature unpossessed by living soul, desert and desolate, only to shine yet scarce to contribute each orb, a glimpse of light conveyed so far, down to this habitable, which returns light back to them, is obvious to dispute. The universe is so big that there must be something else going on in it other than us. And that something else must be other worlds around other stars. Milton here recapitulates what he's learnt from Galileo, what he's learnt from the dialogue and perhaps from his own conversations with Galileo, which is the theory of the infinite universe and of other worlds. This is the music of Galileo's brother, Michelangelo. Tortured individual. His music is, uh, he says, disharmonious. Uh, it's not nearly as uh, easy as the music of Galileo's father. What I've tried to persuade you is that Galileo was never a Christian. And not only that he was never a Christian, but that... You'd think that would stop it, but it doesn't. Uh, not only was Galileo never a Christian, but that he actually deliberately set out within the dialogue as best he could to present the most radical argument that any scientist or philosopher had presented and the one that was most difficult to reconcile with Christianity. The argument that this is an infinite universe in which we have no significant place. That is the most alarming conclusion of Galileo. That we do not have an important place in the universe. The universe was not made for us Whatever it was made for, we cannot be important within it. And that therefore, the story as told by Christianity cannot be the right story for understanding what's going on. Thank you. Thank you very much. We do have some time for discussion. Uh, if you would uh, kindly indicate if you would like to ask a question, and one of the two stewards will give you a roving mic so that everybody can hear what you uh, what you would like to ask. I was sort of wondering whether, because your thesis was that Galileo was never a Christian, but then you didn't, I, 
I didn't hear any refutation of the of the of Castelli's claim that he had a deathbed conversion. Uh -huh. do, do you have? Did I miss it, or did? Or no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, Castelli believes that Galileo's had a de deathbed conversion. He sends him medals blessed by the Pope, which he says are enormously powerful. Mm -hmm. um, is this right? If you look at what happens afterwards, there's n Castelli never writes to Galileo again like that. He doesn't get back the reply he's hoping for. I think we can be sure about that, or we would have more letters like that. Galileo has a tremendous incentive to present himself as undergoing a religious crisis at this point because he's trying to get released from house arrest. Uh, he's got a tremendous incentive to make things appear that he's changed his mind. But he is, I mean, he's extremely old, he's blind, he's in a considerable pain. He may well have a religious crisis in 1639. In a sense, I, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. What, what's important to me is that I think it's clear from Castelli's letter that he, this would represent an extraordinary change. Yes. The mic here, please. <coughs> yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the relationship to Castelli. Um, um, if he's a very pious man, and we know he reacted with some degree of horror to Vincenzo's um, the nephew's uh, impieties, um, I'm interested in when he became aware of Galileo's impieties, and um, to the extent which he knew of them, and why did he persist in his friendship? If he's a pious man, why did he, you know, persist in such stuff? These such self-evidently disgusting things to right. be holding if you're a Catholic, and uh, for fear of the Inquisition, why did he persist in his friendship with Galileo? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, the answer to that question, I think, lies in the first letter we have from Castelli to Galileo, which is dated to something like uh, 1600. I can't remember the date exactly. Uh, from very early in their relationship, 30 years. 40 years earlier than this correspondence we've been looking at now, where Castelli writes to Galileo discussing Galile one of fun Galileo's fundamental intellectual breakthroughs, which is the claim that movement is relative, that there is no fundamental difference between X moving with regard to Y or Y moving with regard to X. And Castelli says that if this is right, and I won't go through the details of this, and I'd have to get the text out to do it. If this is right, standard arguments for the existence of God no longer work. That we can no longer rely upon the standard account of how there must be a first mover. That, he says, would be blasphemous and terrible, but that is, that is the case. My interpretation of this letter, and it's a problematic letter, is that Castelli at this point understands perfectly that Galileo sees that and that Castelli is saying I'm prepared to accept that the work you're doing is demolishing some of the standard arguments for faith but of course I'm not prepared to agree that at that point we would have to abandon our faith and it's very, I mean Castelli clearly is a pious person, he's not, I don't think he's wearing a mask when he gets seasick he prays to St. Philip Neri and St. Philip Neri helps him 
you get, you get the standard counter-reformation letters from him, precisely of a sort you never get from Galileo. I think Castelli is a perfectly good believer, and in that sense I think his friendship with Galileo is a remarkable achievement, and an honorable achievement, and an admirable one. And I think, I've very carefully not said in this talk today that you needed to be an unbeliever to be the sort of scientist that Galileo is, or to suggest that the scientific revolution has some sort of basic roots in unbelief. And I think the argument against that is Castelli, who follows Galileo step by step on the intellectual path of the new science, but not, I think, on Galileo's religious position. So I agree, it requires a very complicated and interesting Castelli. Uh, I don't think that's impossible. Uh, I certainly, we've seen perfectly clearly in the case of uh, Galileo's nephew that Castelli doesn't go around denouncing people to the authorities when he could. And I presume that that's the policy he takes with Galileo himself. Um, so I, I take your argument that say Galileo wasn't a Christian but then I guess I have to ask what exactly was he and I, I know that's maybe too specific but I, even what options were available at that time right what was intellectually I mean you can't presumably you couldn't be a intellectually coherent atheist in the way that they are today right there just aren't that many explanations for all these things like the origin of the universe and so on. Um, I don't think there are, there are a number of there are, I suppose you might say there are three fundamental options available to Galileo uh, one of which he clearly rejects and two of which he behaves as if he adopts but he can't adopt both of them easily so we have a problem hardline Aristotelianism insisted that the universe was eternal left no conceptual space for miracles and was interpreted by many 16th and early 17th century Aristotelian philosophers as being fundamentally incompatible with Christianity. That's an option. That's the option of his friend Cremonini, whom he spends a lot of time with. But the whole of Galileo's intellectual enterprise is one of demolishing Aristotelianism. The second option is Platonism. Uh, Platonism provides a cosmogony which is profoundly different from that of standard Christianity, which has in many contexts been Christianized, but which you could certainly develop to provide an alternative account. And what we see very interestingly in Galileo's letter to Dini of 1615, in de Montseny's report of what Viviani tells him, is uh, an adoption of Platonism. And Galileo at one point calls Plato our master in a, in a, in a letter. The problem with seeing Galileo as a Platonist is that it's quite clear that in many contexts he's an atomist and that his atomism would appear to come from Lucretius. And Lucretian atomism provides a third option, which is the option that his enemies suspect that he adopts. And we know, for example, that Ciampoli, who uh, becomes a leading Roman bureaucrat, reports that He's converted to atomism by Galileo. Campanella has a, recently discovered several letters on Campanella where he says that he's been in arguments with Galileo and his close associates, and they've insisted on defending atomism while he's been trying to attack it. Campanella believes in an alternative position. So I think the best evidence is that he's some sort of Lucretian atomist. But that's... I don't think we can get consistent position. And I think in part this is because it's very hard out of Lucretian atomism to get a well-constructed universe. 
And Galileo, I think, can see that there are certain respects in which this appears to be a well-constructed universe. So he uses the language of the divine architect in uh, the dialogue, which is the language of Platonism. I don't have a conclusion, therefore, about what sort of what his real private commitments are. He may not. He may have private uncertainties. If we wanted to use modern language, I think he's some sort of deist. I think he thinks there is some sort of divine architect. I think he thinks the universe is rational. I think he thinks mathematics is the language of God. But I don't think he believes in revealed religion. And I don't think there is anything that resembles good evidence that he believes in revealed religion. Uh, yeah, lady over there. Did Galileo ever comment on Copernicus' um, Christianity? Yes. I mean, when Copernicanism is about to be condemned, Galileo says, what are you doing? Copernicus, Copernican, Copernicus was a, uh, a canon in the Catholic Church. He, he came to Rome and was welcomed by the Pope. He worked on the revision of the uh, calendar for the papacy. Uh, you're, you're, you're denouncing one of your own. You're condemning one of your own. What are you, what are you doing in that sense? He says, as generations of Catholics have said about Galileo, this man was a perfectly respectable Catholic, and therefore you should uh, not accuse him of heresy. Um, he, there's, a, there's a detailed piece of scholarship which shows that almost everything Galileo says about Copernicus is untrue. The question is, did Galileo know it was untrue? And I really think we can't tell. I don't know if he was over-egging the pudding in his presentation of Copernicus as a good Catholic. It was certainly a convenient thing to be able to say. Uh, I don't think there's no let's take the test case of the infinite universe Copernicus says if you pursue this line of thinking this is in book one if you pursue this line of thinking you might want to argue that the universe is infinite but I'm not going to go there he opens the question and then he closes it down not by saying it isn't but by saying this is not something I intend to discuss so you get digs immediately saying, well, 30 years later saying, let's discuss it. And what, so that it seems to me, for Galileo reading Copernicus, what you can see there is a clear invitation to step outside vision of the cosmos in which uh, it's been constructed to provide a home for humankind and to see it as a cosmos in which humankind are unimportant. But precisely Copernicus opens up this possibility and then doesn't pursue it. So I would have thought for Galileo, Copernicus is a profoundly ambiguous text, as it is for us, and as Galileo becomes for us. Yep, over there. An apology to, um, to Galileo, but could you paraphrase what they did say? Uh, in 2000, the, this, is, um, this is a very delicate and complicated set of issues here, the, the, the current position of the Catholic Church on the question of Galileo. In 2000, the Catholic Church declared that Galileo should not have been condemned, that he was a good Catholic, that his theology was in many respects sound, and that he should be respected as the founder of modern science. Uh, they also said, however, uh, that uh, there were two points of view to be had on the question of the trial, that it was naturally 
uh, it was easy to understand why he was condemned in the circumstances of the day. So there's a complicated little text there, which is somewhat ambiguous. Uh, there's a long tradition since 2000 of liberal Catholics protesting that that text doesn't go far enough. Uh, amongst them, the Pope's astronomers, who edit a series of texts called Galileo Studies, which are partly devoted to arguing that Galileo's re rehabilitation should go further. And all those texts, of course, depend upon the claim that it was wrong to condemn Galileo because he was a Greek Catholic. They all depend upon the claim that Viviani's representation of Galileo is a well-founded re representation. Uh, and, and so I'm... I mean, I have a lot of respect for what liberal Catholics are trying to do in trying to rehabilitate the reputation of Galileo, but I just think they're wrong. I mean, I think they're trying to do the impossible. They're trying to rescue someone whose enterprise was uh, corrosive of Christian faith and was intended to be, and claim that their enterprise was uh, entirely compatible with Christian faith. Now, of course, Christianity has moved on a great deal since 1633. A the Pope's astronomer said last month that if a Martian came to Earth and asked to be baptized, he would baptize him. Um, and in that sense, you know, Christianity is a profoundly adaptable religion, and there is no problem. There is no longer a problem for Christians in Copernicanism, right? There hasn't been a problem for Christians with Copernicanism for a very long time. The argument I'm making is that Galileo thinks there's a problem for Christians with Copernicanism, and that's one of the attractions of Copernicanism for him. That's what I would claim. Just one final question. Uh, this gentleman here. I wonder if you could say a bit more about um, Galileo moving from the comparative safety of Padua to Florence. Was it the uh, uh, lure of the Medici, or does it tell us something about his character, maybe? Uh, it's several things. Uh, he, he gets the first research professorship. He's promised he will never have to teach again. This, he has, to, he has the outrageous <laughs> workload of having to teach 40 half hours of lectures a year, which he finds intolerable. 40 half hours of lectures a year. He is rescued from this. Uh, he also gets a small pay increase, but he's earning more because he's doing a lot of private tuition, which he gives up. So his income actually falls when he moves. What he's given is freedom to write. That's what he says he wants. That's what he's, the fact that it then takes him 30 years to write his great book, not 22 years to write his great book, is a little puzzle. But he says he wants freedom to write. But the very first letter we have from him when he gets to Florence is a letter to the great Jesuit mathematician and astronomer, Clavius. Galileo says, I have not been in touch with you for a very long time for reasons that I don't have to specify. He's been in Venice. Venice has kicked out the Jesuits in 1607. It's been under papal interdict. He's not dared communicate with Rome, and he's not dared communicate with the Jesuit. He's not been in touch. And the very first thing he does is write to Clavius and say, we need to work together, as it were, on the new astronomy. So I think Galileo makes an absolute deliberate decision. He's hoping that he can form an alliance with the Jesuits and other new intellectuals in Rome against Aristotelianism. And that's still on the cards in 1624. That's what Urban VIII wants from Galileo. Urban VIII makes Castelli a professor in Rome because he's an anti-Aristotelian. 
There's a whole group of, of Roman intellectuals who are, think that Aristotle is bad for Christianity, that the new philosophy is potentially better for Christianity, and Galileo, I think, is deliberately trying to form that alliance. That alliance breaks down in 1616. And the condemnation of Copernicanism is something Galileo can never forgive the Jesuits for because he believes they're party to it and indeed they go along with it. And when he's offered the chance of rebuilding it after 1624, he cannot do it with a good heart, which is why what he sets out to do is pay lip service to the conditions that have been imposed upon him by Urban VIII, but actually to break them, which is what makes Urban furious. Galileo could have worked with those conditions. And in 1610 or 1612 or 1615, I think he would have been happy to. But by, after the condemnation of Copernicanism, unprepared to compromise. So I think there's a, actually a phase when Galileo is trying to work the line that he's a better Catholic than Cremonini. And that's a very promising line to work. And he's hoping that what we, he will get out of it is Copernicanism being accepted as the official intellectual position of the, of the Catholic Church. And when he discovers he can't get that out of it, he, he turns against his former allies. That's my interpretation. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, before we, I think we better close it there, but, uh, but David will be in the ante room here signing copies of his books for any of you, of his book rather, for any of you who would like to buy, and I'm sure he'd also be happy to carry on some conversation as well for a, a little while before we go off and dine him and wine him. Uh, but let me, let's just bring the formal proceedings to an end by thanking David very much for a fascinating talk and for very interesting answers to questions too. Thank you very much. Thank you.